Hi, Dander Brown. It's me, Lahari. Does it feel a little early to hear from me? It is uh, probably true. You're not entirely wrong. Usually we release our Dander Brown episodes on a biweekly cadence, but this time I wanted to do a bonus episode that talks about something contemporary, examine something like a TV show, movie, etc. And you know, we've done this before. We've done this with, and just like that, Sex and the City's sequel question mark this time i was really fascinated by the press that prince harry is getting especially for this move that he's taking up on leaving the royal family and raising some awareness on the media system and also the institution's practices especially when it comes to race this also then of course was a ding ding moment for me and multiple millions of other people out there because we might have shared our histories with Prince Harry's family. So I actually reached out to a host of another podcast who might be a guest here, but rocks her own podcast called Brown Game Strong. I reached out to Mithali Dergani, who is a London-based podcast host and also has multiple things that she kicks ass at. She's a designer, consultant, digital illustrator, and dancer. We thought it would be fun to review this book from the lens of two women who are brown, who have colonial history with the UK. In fact, one of my memories that sort of just like core memory, if you will, is when I was taking the entrance exam to go to school in India, and I went to second and third grade there. And I remember taking the test. And at that time, it was 50 years of independence for India. So there was a sign up there saying like 1947, like, I will never forget that. In fact, that helped me a lot in remembering the independence date. But add that to the fact that I live in the US, another colonizer, also a place that had history with the British. And then we have Mithali, who was born in Spain, moved to the UK and shares her history with India as well from a Sindhi context. We felt this was kind of the perfect way to make an interesting conversation about why we think Prince Harry's autobiography sort of exists, what we think he was trying to say, what we thought was missing, what we did appreciate, etc. I'll keep the intro to that because our episode is pretty long. But the last thing I have to share is something that we've never done before in Down to Brown, which is to partner with another South Asian company to have a sponsor. So I'm super excited to say that this episode of Down to Brown is brought to you by, drumroll, Brooklyn Deli. Growing up, I know we all had some kind of condiment that we loved with the perfect balance of tang, sweetness, and most importantly, spice. Brooklyn Deli delivers this with their ketchup, mustard, and achars, which is a kind of spicy sauce if you're not familiar. And you can use it in literally anything, pizza, cottage cheese, soups. You can even buy their curry sauces and whip up a dish at home in no time by just doing the little stir fry, pour in the sauce, voila, you're a chef. For 10% off, enter the code LAHARI10 at checkout. That being said, let's move into our conversation and meet Mithali. Ali Dargani, I'm so excited to have you on Down to Brown. Thank you so much for joining. 
Thank you so much for having me, Lahari. Uh, it's such an exciting moment because I know we've been like working towards it and we've had to reschedule it a couple of times. So glad that we're here and doing this today. I know, me too. And but this is like the tale of two podcasts coming together. I think we met through Shabnam, who's the host of Culture Durna. So lots of podcast love going on. But before we start, and I really want to get to know you a little bit more, but I'd love to ask you a little bit about, you know, as we ground our conversation, why are we doing this? Obviously, we're not here just to bash a white man. So what's our intention here, you and I? Just banter. That's what we say in the UK. (laughs) It's so topical. Like Prince Harry's book has just come out recently and he's had this Netflix show. They've got podcasts like him and Megan are all over the news and more so than that, I think it's just the trolling and it fascinates me. Like, I would have never thought that a royal that rebelled and suddenly decided to spill out all the royal uh, family secrets is being made fun of by us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird, weird thing to to be witnessing and be like privy to in this lifestyle, in this lifetime. So yeah, I think it's just very topical I know we all have opinions and obviously I think with the angle of being desi like I'm Indian yeah and for me obviously you know uh we were colonized by the British and I live in the UK so I think there's so many paradoxes there and Mm -hmm. um sometimes I do question you know I've, I've literally built my entire career and foundation in a country where I pay tax to people who have stolen from my ancestors. And that concept in itself is very confusing to me. Um, So yeah, just, yeah, really like excited to have a discussion about it because I'm sure like people listening as well will probably have a lot of thoughts. And I'm curious to kind of find out whether our thoughts match those or whether people think we're just completely chatting like nonsense (laughs) you know don't really know what we're talking about for a conversation between yourselves um no I think there's so many nuggets there because a who knows if you and I will even agree on some of the things right and I'm really curious to see how we both approach this book and also how we took away um items and I agree I think my intention is also a little bit like you know, coming from a communications background too, sometimes I'm always like, why is something out there? Like if you're going to use up the space for people, like the public's audience attention, and you've worked with this publisher, employed so many people to put the story out. I'm really curious, like, is it worth the space you took up? Like, did it change the game for people in a way? Right. So I, I always evaluate content in that way. So I'm really curious to also hear and discuss more how we felt about like, okay, Harry, put this out there. And with such a big platform and like so many attention spans captivated, was it worth it? Like, did it give what we needed and like, did it address and move the needle in some way? Um, But I'm super excited to hear your perspective too, just because I think that was one of the appealing things about us talking about it too, for me, was that we come from a country that's colonized. I was born in Texas, but, and grew up here, but went really back and forth between India and here, um, and you get to see that perspective and influence, but then you come here and then also we are colonizers in the US as well. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting hodgepodge of colonization, colonizer dynamics. Yes. Dali, you had mentioned a little bit about, you know, you had not grown up in the UK. Where did you spend your childhood? How did you come to this point where we're sitting here over Zoom talking about this? So 
I was born in Barcelona. Um, I am the daughter of two immigrant parents from India, specifically Jaipur, but we are Sindhi by heritage. So what that means is I come from a community of refugees. Um, my great-grandparents had to migrate from Pakistan, which is where Sindh is still, um, into basically, goodness knows who, uh, where in India, because... Um, because they did not belong uh, where they were anymore. So I think, um, I guess just to kind of give a bit of background about my roots in a way. Um, so it's very much from a, you know, it's sort of like a refugee mindset of, you know, we lost it all, had to build it from scratch. And so often what we see in the Sindhi community is, you know, Sindhis are trolled for being very um, materialistic and they're super into like the oh, jewels and being, you know, glitzy and glam. And I don't know if you've ever watched Family Karma on. No. Uh, OK, so it's this show that's based in Miami. And I know that for a fact that there are some Sindhis in there. So yeah. they are fitting into this stereotype. Um, but you have uh, Sindhis all over the world. And it's because we have this mindset of like we can conquer anywhere we move to. So you'll have mm -hmm. hubs around the world. So Spain is a massive hub for Cindy's, which mm -hmm. um, when I moved wow, to... Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's really random. So like Spain, and then there's randomly like Miami. I'm sure there's other places in the US as well. Um, there's also a huge hub in like Hong Kong, Singapore, Dubai, Jakarta, Manila, um, and then Bombay, like well, different parts of India as well. Mumbai and mm -hmm. Jaipur is a huge community. So I think Cindy's are everywhere. Indians are everywhere. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is when I moved to the UK at 17 years old for university, because I'd studied A-levels, I'd kind of done the whole British curriculum at school. And so for me, the next step was naturally to go to the UK and being a big city girl, you know, having lived in Barcelona, I could only ever imagine myself going to London. Yeah. And I think that element of like, you know, listening to like British Asian pop music, Jay Sean and Juggy D and yes. all of that. I grew up with that. And I was literally like, oh my God, no, I want to hang with them. Like I want to go to London. <laughs> I have not hung best with friends. So Mithali, did we become very good friends with them? I mean, I'm going to give it a few more years and yeah. I don't know if I'm going to anymore. I don't They're know. The looking at my DMs, but one day. <laughs> <laughs> one day um but no so yeah I've been living in the UK now for about 12 years I came for university and pretty much never really left like I, I've been you know I've started my career here and now now we're here now I run a podcast and yeah. um finding ways to just kind of talk about our experiences as Desis growing up outside you know whatever we call our homeland or our roots you know the, the country of our roots because nowadays what does that even mean like people are from everywhere and you know totally. there's this idea of like the third culture kid and so I think it's fascinating and I'm loving that there's such a movement where everybody's kind of sharing their experiences and talking about that in between like that nuance you know what are the specific experiences I had as a Spanish Sindhi versus someone who's like Kenyan Gujarati versus someone who's Punjabi who grew up in the Midlands in the UK you know yeah. so so it is and they're all different you know like we generalize a lot with the with the term South Asian but I, I think it's so worth talking about what those right. different experiences look like for people so yeah that's that's where we are now I can't agree more and thank you for sharing that because when it comes to hyphenated identities it sounds like for you you're like how many um and so I think that's really fascinating because I also don't know as much about the history of the Cindy people and culture and I, I know of course about the identity having friends 
But to take that and compound it with so many other dynamics of, you know, just even like the border, you know, with, between Pakistan and India and how some Sindhi folks have the, that background as well, coming as refugees. And then even when like in a country where we then immigrate, there's just like an explosion of, I feel like, possibilities. So I'm especially thankful for you to like highlight that and bring awareness to that. Because to your point, like I thought South Asian already was something that I was taking a step forward with in terms of in my journey, like starting this podcast, even it's just so easy for me. It was so easy for me to say like Indian, because you kind of just assume like the dominant right um, country of that uh, diaspora. But then it was very clear to me, like, this is not inclusive either. So I started to use South Asian. But to your point, yeah, like what is South Asia in a way? Because at some point we've all collected so many experiences um, and I know we, you alluded to this earlier too, but I'm also really fascinated by the fact that you saw some of this, you know, even the Royals drama and some of the stories through the Spanish like resident lens. And then also as a UK British lens. Um, so, uh, as we jump into that, I'd love to ask you, what was your understanding of the Royals? Like with all of this background, are you referring to the Spanish royals or the British royals? The British royals, since we're talking about that. But actually, we could even talk about the Spanish royals because I actually don't know much about that either. So I think growing up in Spain, it is in many ways similar to growing up in the UK where you have a very prominent royal family and the media are constantly obsessed with them. So you grow up watching the news and, you know, they're plastered all over the TV yeah. and they're plastered all over magazines. Um, you you just can't avoid them. Like they're everywhere. And yeah. so I thought, you know, the obsession can't get much worse than, you know, Spanish people's obsession with their royal family. Right. <laughs> um, and what I've slowly come to realize is that a lot of it is media based. It is the media that feeds it into the minds of the right. people who obviously get excited because they're being brainwashed into believing whatever they're seeing and so and so it's it was just one of those things that really always fascinated me but I also took it for granted because it was just always there and so I never thought oh you know like what do these royals actually do with their day apart from just dress up and go to events and like waves really slowly and like you know, do charity work. Yeah, like yeah. that's all you would see. They just go to places like Africa and just do charity work. And I'd be like, right. okay, doing a lot of good. And then as I got older, like, I don't know if you've heard about the um, Spanish royal family or like the ex-king, but um, he's like got into a bit of a, a bit of trouble in the last few years because of like taxpayer money that he owes. Um, and he's basically run off to the Middle East because he just can't, like, he doesn't know what to do with it. Oh and so God. I think it's it's stuff like that that makes you think, wow, is it all a scam? And yeah. you know, anyone we grew up watching on TV, whether it's like celebrities or royals or anyone else, you just put them on such a pedestal because mm-hmm. that's all that's kind of glorified in front of you. And yeah. so you always think there's there's an element of like, aspiration when you look at them you're like oh I want to be like that like I want to be elegant like that princess or Mm -hmm. you know and then obviously part of it also comes from fairy tales and stories like being a princess or a queen like it's considered as such a compliment right so that's what we've all grown up um, with being fed into our brains so when I moved to the UK I thought you know it can't get any worse and then I come to the UK and I'm just like (laughs) oh my gosh people are obsessed to another level here like you walk around London and there are souvenir shops there are souvenir shops with literal masks of like the queen or the king's face 
Um, and you can buy the mask as like a souvenir or like a thimble, or you can buy like a fan. Oh like, it, but it's not even that. Like, I get that element of like you know tourism, yeah, and the money that that brings in. But... I just immediately went into like a Batman scene where I was like, the Joker could wear one of those masks and steal it, like rob like a bank, like that's like exactly. not go with like a mask. Exactly. I mean, or I don't know if you've ever watched. Was it Doom Three or Doom Two? Mm-hmm. The one where Riddick Roshan dresses as the Queen, and it's like this whole thing about the Queen oh, yeah. Diamond. Oh, you're so... right. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. It's so funny. Like, there's there's actual like reels now online about how funny it is. Riddick <laughs> yeah. Roshan so possible. <laughs> but um, but I think I think to answer your question, like, I wasn't surprised. But I was a little bit overwhelmed because I was like, yeah. oh, my gosh, like speaking to people in my periphery, friends that I'd made at university, people were just literally obsessed for no reason um, mm-hmm. with the royals and what they were up to. And I remember like when um, when William and Kate got married, we all I was in school. I think I was in my penult- penultimate year at school. And mm-hmm. we all just like stopped our classes and just went and sat in front of the TV and watched the wedding wow um, and then obviously with Harry and Meghan getting married it was like again same thing yeah. or whenever a baby is born in that family it's like all over the news all over like you're on the tube and you see um you know people holding up uh newspapers yeah. and front page headlines like for no absolute reason and then I found out random facts like how the queen so RIP the queen but she owned all of the swans in the UK so you can't hurt a swan otherwise you'll be put into jail because apparently it's owned by the institution and uh you I'm not own a species to... <laughs> you tell me <laughs> they also That's own everything that they looted from our country right so. of course yeah oh my god getting into the Kohinoor later on <laughs> with like the book as well yeah. How, did it feel like it was, is it safe to say that the obsession about the royals was more in the UK than you saw in Spain? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating because already you were like, you know, it was such a moment that it captured, but you know, it's incredible how much, like when you were saying all like, you know, those stories of growing up and like, even during school, like watching the wedding, it becomes so much of a part of our day and time. And the thing is, I love what you said about the media because it, I don't know if it's like, you know, in a chicken or egg situation, if we ever really gave them that importance or if they meant that much to us or we were made to think that they mean like mean so much to us. Because in the US, we have this sort of like joke, right? Like about the Kardashians being our royal family because the media made it so. So yes. to me, like, you know, if we're thinking even like philosophically, what is royalty? You know, at, at some point, like, you know, we talked about even like earlier, we were catching up about the Super Bowl, like Rihanna's performance. And you had said, like, she's such a queen and like the choreographer. And I was like, yeah, we use the word queen now in a very democratic way where we like distribute. Mm. We give that importance to people who do. It doesn't have to be the people that we grew up with. Um, so I kind of wonder, like, you know, even just getting into as we think, talk about the book, like the sort of like modern day interpretation of royalty and like queens and princesses, like what do they mean to us today? Yeah. And it's how that translates into pop culture and our daily lives. Right. And I I don't agree with you in that it's chicken and egg. I genuinely think it is media driven. And I also think 
that the royals back in the day did hold a lot of power, right? Back back right. when there were like wars and you'd hear about all the different, you know, the medieval ages and all the different like eras that we've been through, especially in the UK. The reason why there's so much obsession about the royal family is because of history, yeah. because it's fascinating, right? Seeing like yeah. the lineage and all the different personalities that were like there and the king that had loads of wives and you know it's it's a story it's storytelling yeah. and people are gripped by stories and funny fact actually um the spanish and uh, british royal families are directly related to each other no and way. actually quite like recently i think it was the queen's cousin who was like yeah i don't know exactly how they're related but yeah it's, it's pretty wild so um i think what it is is that a lot of times when we consume media, we don't think with our like forward thinking brain because we turn that off when we're consuming media, right? Because we're yeah. done with it by the end of the workday. And For so sure. the media and kind of these sort of platforms, they benefit off our subconscious. So when you're kind of just idly reading stuff, like you're obviously consuming it and you're obviously like getting really sucked into it because it's mm -hmm. interesting because of the way that, you know, they've told that compelling story. And because it's a reason to, you know, talk to your friends about something as well. Like the way that people yeah. are obsessed with Love Island here as well in the UK. <laughs> yeah. It's just stupid stuff that people want to talk about. Me and too. so <laughs> I think they're caricatures. Like the royals are caricatures. And you you see it more and more the more you read through Harry's book. Or, or you know, you hear Harry and Meghan talk about how they just didn't want to be part of it because they were puppets. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, as much as we laugh, like... Isn't it so messed up that with that amount of privilege, A, nobody gives you any, like, um, I guess nobody appreciates you for what you go through because they're like, you're literally living in a palace. Like, why yeah. are you complaining? Right. When right. actually inside you hear about their stories and they're all depressed and they're all kind of just like in a cage and they're slaves to whatever the media is going to do next or say next about them. Mm -hmm. So so it's it's just interesting, but... When you're when you're a kid and you want to be a princess and then you grow up and you're like, is that what it's like being a princess? And yeah. it's sort of just like, you know, ruins your childhood a little bit. Absolutely. It does. Especially Princess Diana's death, right? That was like very illuminating worldwide on that note. The degree of I think that internal struggle she was going through, I didn't learn until I was an adult. But back then, mm -hmm. I think we all remember when we were kids and if we were, you know, like at the time, um, I guess, aware enough to know that she had passed, like it was a huge deal the way it was talked about. And even now today, like how much content is out there. Um, and I think that actually disturbed me the most. Like when you talk about like media, like, like we, we give them a hard time, but also just like the sadness of the reality. I think Diana's story really for me was like that piece of what a tragedy to like not be able to enjoy your life at all in the way you want to live it and have ownership because of that piece. Um, and so, I mean, of course, I would love to also talk about in the context of Prince Harry, but what you said actually made me wonder too, of just like, why do we care so much? You think like, even now, like, why do we care so much about the royalty? And I, I will be very honest. Like, I really dislike the monarchy and just like why it's even around still. Like, and I think we just give it a lot of importance. Similar. That's how I evaluate the Kardashians too. I'm like, the more attention I give them the more I'm giving them money, basically, because my time is their money. Um, and so that's how I feel. But I'm curious, like, what do you think is the fascination with royalties? Like, why do we spend so much time talking? And why do we care that Kate said this to Meghan or Harry said this about William? Well, 
look at us now, right? We're making an episode about it. Yeah. It's content. It is right. interesting. It's it's stuff that we can all bond over because it's something we can all read about and it's happening around us. But I think more than that, it's an element of aspiration, right? Because I think what they try and capitalize over is the fact that their lives are better than ours. And yeah, so yeah. that kind of shift in sort of them versus us automatically makes us interested in their lives because we think, imagine living in the Buckingham Palace. Like that must be wild and like mm -hmm. the queen had corgis and you know it's just like little details and you get really into it and then there's things like the netflix's crown the crown by yeah. um yeah on that sorry that the tv show and um i'm i i echo your sentiments like i have been a huge critic of the monarchy because i'm just like i don't understand it like i don't understand what value it brings into our lives apart from just literally taking half my money every month yeah. you know and so I, I do understand. I think it's a very valid question and it's an open question because I don't wow. think there really is an answer to it apart from, you know, what whatever your personal view is. And I think mine is that I think there's just a lot of obsession yeah. um, which has been built up over the years. And, you know, like I said, it's it's the story over the generations that kind of follows through and that's what's keeping them alive. I mean, you look at, I know we'll get into this, but when you look at Harry and Meghan and how they've scrambled to like, find forms of media that they can get contracts on because they are personalities and they have a certain image to uphold right at the end of the day they might say that you know they live in a very modest place and like are trying to live low-key but at the end of the day I'm sure that they're also used to a certain lifestyle yeah. and so they're now like how do we make money because the thing is they were making money from just being royals yeah right yes. And that's, I think that whole concept is fascinating. And it's the fact that they never chose it as well. They were born into it, which makes it even more like, wow, because yes. you can't even be them, even if you try. Uh, I, I actually want to go back on what I said about it being aspirational, because in a way, yeah. I think everybody is aware enough of what it is like to be a royal from what we've been hearing. And but also what you mentioned about what Princess Diana went through, that was no secret, you know? Yeah. So people did know that there was a sinister, sinister side to it. Right. I don't think it's as aspirational as it is just fascinating. Like, yeah. I don't think I would sit here and be like, I wish I was a princess. Like, maybe yeah. when I was 10, maybe. Yeah. But that's because I watched Disney and I wanted to be a Disney princess, not an actual princess. Yeah. And then, do you remember, did you ever read The Princess Diaries? No, I didn't read it, but I watched it. Yeah, so I actually watched it over Christmas. And it's just so interesting because she kind of makes it, she makes it her own, but basically she kind of goes through this whole like ordeal of like, what the right. hell is going on? Like, why is this happening to me? And um, it's just super interesting because those realities have been surrounded. They're surrounding us, you know? We we know mm -hmm. that it's not as perfect as it seems. But yet the shoes that Kate Middleton wears, right? Yeah. I remember yeah. when I moved to the UK, I was obsessed with her shoes. I did not care about the royal family, but I was obsessed with her shoes because she wore these nude pumps. And I can't remember what brand it was, but I spent a good maybe two to three months running around like Aldo and all the other shops <laughs> yeah. trying to find a dupe. I literally yeah. Googled like dupes of Kate Middleton's shoes because I was literally like, I want them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because she just dressed really well for me. And but I see that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, yeah, okay. Like, you know, she, the brands she endorses, like I can totally see why people would be interested in their mm -hmm. life and like how they live because it's like, it's such a, it's also such a 
secret, isn't it? Like you don't actually know like yeah. what does Middleton eat for dinner and stuff. Right. And suddenly like there's the, again, there's that divide and, and it, it hooks you in. So I think that's yeah. what it is actually. Absolutely. And I know we've been like hyping up our conversation about the book. So I will enter that too. But what you yeah. said about, for example, the heels, right. And that's such a relatable moment. I remember one of my friends, like for her gift, like one birthday, she's like, I would love to have the lipstick that Megan wore, like, or Megan yeah. wears, you know, to all of her events. And it was like a Charlotte Tillsbury brand. Um, yeah. But I like, we do, I think the branding aspect also is something that's so interesting to us. Um, but one of the things I thought was really fascinating reading the book is how many things and choices we see choices in quotes we see publicly, but it might be actually very much devised. Right. So what, like, maybe she didn't want to wear those shoes that day, Kate. And someone was like, you must wear this because of the you know impression or what we're going for today. And so how many things that people had to like small details fight over was also really fascinating to me about this book. Um, so let's get into it. Yeah. Did you listen to the book? Did you read the book? Like, did you get a hold of it at the bookstore? So I'll be completely honest with you. Um, there was a pirated copy that was floating around WhatsApp. Yes. And I have I have the pirated copy. So I will, yeah. So I'm not proud of it. <laughs> yeah. And I also buy all my books, everyone, just so you're aware. Yeah. But this particular one... Again, it was just so funny, the fact that the pirated copy was just like going around WhatsApp and people were just sharing it like here and there. Yeah. So I think in preparation for this episode, I did consume that one. But I think otherwise, I would not have purchased the book because, again, like I said, I'm not a I'm not a fan of the monarchy, but also I have consumed enough Harry and Meghan media on Netflix and podcast mediums that I'm just like, I didn't know what else that book would have that I didn't kind of already know or know of. Um, I was mistaken. There was other stuff. Yeah. I think yeah. I learned a lot about Harry's style of writing, I must say. Um, but yeah. So what about you? How did you consume the book? I feel, well, I felt the same way as you in that I didn't really want to give my dollars to it. But I went ahead because I did not have access to a pirated copy. I actually remember you told me after and I was like, fuck, I should have done that instead. <laughs> um, but I ended up buying the audiobook um, for $33 on Spotify. Gosh. Anyway, to your point, I think that's why I, I had high expectations, especially because I was like, I paid for this book. And I really want to understand like, why, like, what are you trying to say, Harry, that we don't know already? Or like, we really need to understand. Um, I listened to the audiobook, right? So it was interesting also, because at times I liked it better, because it's personable. And like, you really get a sense of also like his feelings and inner thoughts. So it kind of closes the gap of intimacy when you're like listening to his voice. At the yeah. same time, I think after a while, it really drove me nuts to hear like a white man just talk about his small problems that <laughs> long, right? Like it's just like droning on and on, like when I'm driving and it's 16 hours long, the book. God. So even at some point, like I remember we, so my husband and I listened to Up First from NPR, like in the mornings when we're driving somewhere and get our news. And all of a sudden, like, it's like, you know, two times the speed or something. And he's like, Larry, can you like put it back to the like one time speed? And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry, because like, I need to do that with Prince Harry's book. Otherwise, like, <laughs> I can't get through the whole thing because I can't listen to his Todger on like yeah. one time. Mm, yeah, I guess it's a bit different when you're hearing it in his voice. Like, it's like he's talking to you in your ear. Like, that's kind yes. of creepy. And the sort of stuff he also has in the book. I'm just like, 
I don't know if I'd want to hear it, to be honest, but um, yeah, 16 you hours yourself. of your life that you are not going to get back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, you made the right choice. I will say usually we're like, there's no right or wrong in life. There's a right here. Um, I also absolutely do not endorse like reading pirated copies of anything because people do deserve the money, but Harry fair. does not. <laughs> you think so now having read it, what do you think the book's intention was? What do you think he was trying to say with this? I think that Prince Harry was on a little bit of an ego trip and he just basically this throughout this whole book, I think he's sort of making small justifications for little stories that came out over time throughout his life in the media that made him look a little little bit silly. And I think he's almost seen this as this is my opportunity to redeem myself because obviously it's my word against anyone else's. Yeah, And so I think there's a tone of defensiveness when you're reading this book. And there's also an element of resentment. Like he's obviously got this immense privilege that he's grown up with. And I do not, I do not undermine for a second the difficulties that he would have gone through as well. Like I do understand that. Like it is a difficult situation to be in when you're a prince, but also you're kind of quote unquote, like aware of things like Mm -hmm. race and the patriarchy and you're also aware that your country that you basically represent has stolen from half of the world and you know I genuinely did think like Harry was a lot more I used to think he was a lot more intelligent than I now think um having read the book which is interesting damn that's savage but I agree (laughs) he's but he says it himself right he's always said like he's not been very studious and I think there's a term they use in the book I can't remember now it's like Prince Thicko or something I I don't know what they (laughs) use but it's just it's hilarious um the whole thing I just found a little bit comical I'm not gonna lie and yeah you know maybe it's partly also because the whole world is kind of trolling him so it just makes a little bit funnier but also I just feel like he's playing victim the whole time and he really shouldn't like he he needs to be a bit more aware of what position he's in and and where he really comes from because I don't think he's tried to think of it from the perspective of the reader he's just kind of like blurted at people um his entire story and it's almost like a little bit like self-demeaning like it's almost demeaning of his entire story the way that he's sort of put it forward which is a shame but I don't know if it's his publisher or his agent that's done it I don't know what, what do you think? What did you, what were you I, No, I completely agree. I think you said it best. So I won't repeat anything you said, but basically copy paste. That's, no, you said it much more eloquently than I could have. I agree. Um, I think the audience, I was really trying to ask myself, like, who is he speaking to? Yeah. And in some ways, I think it was, I, I had a theory. So A, I agree with the whole defensiveness and like sort of he had the opportunity to be like on the record, let me take all these things and prove what I actually was thinking. I also felt the audience was maybe for sort of rich people who can also relate to this privacy issue yeah. and being trolled by the media. It's like, I, I feel like we're seeing that more and more now sometimes, like even with the conversation with Nepo babies and some <laughs> of the celebrities like reactions to it where they're like, well, you have to work hard regardless. So like we well, my struggles work. on coming with coffee with Karen when my dad didn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because you're like, but you're still missing the point about how you even had that opportunity to enter that door because someone walked you to it. 
So I think that's the part that I, I'm really intrigued by. He seems to be tone deaf in terms of that. And I also, in a way, felt like, is this his note to his mom? Like, it felt like he was, like, trying to talk, especially hearing him talk. Sometimes I think that was the only thing that I was sort of the softness that he appealed to me. My heart was appealed to the fact that he's a son who's sorely missing his mother. And, you know, in a way, it's also very mommy issues, I think, the book and some of these choices that he makes. Like, to me, it was sort of like Spare Us the Mommy Issues should have been the name of the book. Because I, I do sympathize with the fact that, of course, you know, like, um, I would I would be in shambles. I'd write books on books if, like, you know, that happened. And, uh, but it felt like, is this you in conversation with your mother about what you went through in life and how things went? Like, especially the way he would talk about his family, which we'll get into more. It, it at times didn't make sense why he was also taking up this room to put himself in such favorability and sometimes I felt like blatantly ignore the trauma of his other family members or what they are going through in their experience. That is very, very true. I think he comes from a very selfish perspective here. And I I think a part of me tries to think, well, if I was Prince Harry, right? Now, if, if I'd grown up in that family, would I also be that tone deaf? And it might be that I would have because yeah. it's not that he hasn't traveled the world. It's not that he hasn't met people from different levels of privilege. It's not that he hasn't literally married someone from a completely different continent who comes right. from a very different background to him, you know? So so it's like, it's not like he's not had opportunities to learn. So I think that kind of makes me wonder where I would, where I would be if I was him, because mm-hmm. I think naturally I am a bit, bit of an empath, empathetic person or an empath. So I would automatically try and think of it from the perspective of different people. Same. But maybe when you've had such a drastically, intensely privileged experience when it comes to riches or, you know, having a certain amount of like security or admiration or whatever it is, or like fame, then maybe that does kind of blind blind you a little bit and mm-hmm. makes you sort of not really physically able to put yourself in the shoes of other people. But it's funny because you're right. He didn't put himself himself in the shoes of Willie, his yeah. brother. Um, because he kind of, the whole book sort of is just him like resenting his brother because he yeah. was the spare and his brother was the real heir to the throne. So his his like life was not worth anything. And I think he's probably not healed from that. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing with his mom, I totally agree. Like he is kind of talking to his mom the whole time. And and the fact that he was in denial and probably still is in denial about the fact that she's not here anymore and how he kind of thought she'd like run away and, you know, she's living a better life somewhere, a bit mm-hmm. like Tupac. Maybe they all go to the same island. I don't know. Right. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, so it's fuck the fame. Let's just hang out. <laughs> island. Yeah, let's, let's chill, you know, <laughs> let's go to our little Illuminati corner. Yeah. On this <laughs> but um, I actually wanted to ask you, Lahari, when you heard him say the word mummy, how did he say it? Oh, my gosh. I, I think it's the way you said mummy mummy yeah. <laughs> yeah with a little bit of his like hoarseness like mummy um but um I that's actually a good one I'm gonna actually like get an audio clip of it for you so they can have that satisfaction I, I'm glad you brought up Willie the way he portrayed him was to me very interesting because it still seemed like he was almost telling again like because I've convinced myself that it's like a note to his mom it's almost like he was saying like see this is how like 
he Willie did this mom like go tell him right like when I I'd be like Shivani stole my sweater you know mom and Mm. to me it was almost like a book that was written um to your point like he hasn't healed like in the midst like a third of the way of his healing journey so when you think back I don't know I won't generalize that everyone went through this, but I certainly went through a really big journey and like period of time in my life where I felt like I was like trying to make sense of the stuff in my family. And like, you know, there was a point in time where I was probably the angriest and most sort of, I'm just someone who's a product of all this and not taking so much ownership or understanding kind of what would be going through my dad's head or my mom's head or my sister's. Right. So to me, it was like, if someone gave me a book deal then, and then was like, go ahead and write something for the world to read, because I don't think it would have been as fully baked. And so I felt like we were, I don't want to ask for more books, but I'm kind of like, are we getting part one a little bit? Um, Even though part one had three parts that were 60 chapters each. Uh, So that was something that I kind of was a little bothered by because I was like, man, you wrote this book too early. You're not you haven't really even spent a year away from the uh, crown for you to write a book like this. Mm, It's premature. I felt that as well. I was like, he's holding a lot of grudges and vulnerability is showing in his work, which I mean, at times it's it's great, right? Mm -hmm. It's great. But I think when you're ranting, like legitimately ranting without putting yourself in a more of a holistic point of view, Yes, as yeah. you know when you write a book you have a bit of a responsibility as well I don't know do you have a responsibility like here's someone who comes from a very prominent family and anything that he has written has obviously had a huge impact on the entire institution if not the entire country because that's the reputation of the UK now that's yeah. basically on the toilet you know after that book right. um so it it does make me kind of wonder as well like should right. he have written it now but did he just need the money because he probably just was like eh let me get a book right. deal eh, let me get a podcast deal you know absolutely i i agree and i think to your point what's different about this cuz some people might say like hey like the media does this to him why can't he take control make the money himself and do the same but to me the whole point of like why we sort of sympathize at least me is like the media is taking all the stories. It's out of your control. You're not really getting to report it. But when the royalty does speak, they do have some credibility. I don't think they've said anything that seems as um, like out there, just like emotionally spoken as the media does, if I hope I'm making sense. So yeah. I think the fact that he was like, now I'm going to put this on the record. I expected a little bit more sophistication. I guess from his like storytelling it's it I think he really just word vomed right because his entire life they talk about it in the book because he talks about it um their whole family philosophy is just don't say anything I don't know what the exact term is but it's literally don't react don't say anything Mm -hmm. just smile and nod you know that's how you need to live your life because anything you say will be used against you in the media so just let the media do what they deal with it separately you know and so he's gone from that life to suddenly having freedom and I imagine because it's only been about a year or so right he probably did start writing the book immediately because that was his way of like recovering from whatever that restriction was his whole life and so it's just a bit like that's where it gets ranty and it's kind of like there's a hidden agenda here where he just feels like he needs to justify everything that's happened he needs to redeem himself he needs to make himself look like a bit of a sad puppy because he's been the spare and you know that that's where the whole premise of the book comes from in a way and 
And I just would have expected better from him, yeah, I guess. A um, bit more objectivity, a bit more decorum. Yes, because he was asking for sympathy for what he's been through. You're asking for sympathy on the institution itself. And yeah. that's where especially what bothered me is that he didn't do justice by his family members and how he told their stories. So we had alluded to like uh, Prince William. I'm really curious how you felt about his depiction of Prince William. And do you think he was fair to Prince William? I think so. The media that I consume is and I think I, maybe we spoke about this. I don't know. But from the perspective of people who have rebelled from the royal family, and I think there's a whole community of us because we're all a bit like skeptical. I mean, don't, I'm not a hater. Absolutely not. I just... I'm so skeptical as to why they have so much power and influence and like so much fascination, right? And so I don't give it the time of day whenever they come in the news. I don't think I've single like ever heard Kate Middleton speak. I've yeah. never heard her voice, I don't think. And I don't think I've even heard Prince William's voice, to be honest, because I just don't bother. But because I've only heard like the Oprah interview that Harry and Meghan gave, or I've watched their, you know, documentary, I don't know how many parts it was. But again, that was just all pure defensiveness, right? Just mm -hmm. to justify what happened to Meghan. Um, I don't like William because of that reason, because I've only ever heard that side of the story. Yeah. And it makes me sometimes sort of step back and be like, I wonder what Kate thinks when she hears this. Or I wonder what William thinks, because mm -hmm. Harry kind of depicts him as this like, just basically older brother that just is ashamed of him and you know doesn't want to be friends with him doesn't want to talk to him um thinks he's probably better than him smarter than him and it's funny because he makes a hair joke about how like bald william's gotten and stuff and it, it's just such a low blow at times because i'm just like you're just a child like you're both like two bickering brothers you know Absolutely. there's not much more to it and so that's, that's the only impression i got really so, like i think i just don't think I got much more out of it. Um, I just think he was depicted in a pretty negative way and almost like he was a brick wall that just wasn't paying attention to what to Harry's supposedly his cries for help. Yeah. But that is very much a one-sided view. And I'd love for Prince William to write a book that yes. kind of comes with the same tone because I think it would be hilarious. What really pissed me off about the way he wrote about William is that it ignored his own, like what William must have processed and like the trauma he faces, especially being the firstborn. And maybe I'm just sympathizing because I'm the firstborn as well. There are all these messages and pressures that you get told that don't include the other siblings. And it doesn't mean you're more important. You know, that's something that I've like had to also like process is like, just like you have to have the humility of like, that's where I might be coming from. But it doesn't mean I'm right. So sometimes the stuff that William would be like, hey, you have to do it this way. I felt like Harry didn't, Harry expected William to be healed and perfect for him, but didn't really think about like, well, maybe William's doing the thing that aunties do where they're like, I went through an arranged marriage. You have to suffer through it too. You know, like mm -hmm. sort of like you have to go through the same rites of passage of trauma for you to like be legitimate. Um, and so I thought that like was really interesting. I also felt like it was a way for him to not take accountability at times, like the way that he talked about the Nazi uniform and like the costume he's yeah. like, he and William laughed and it was sort of insinuated because they were like, yes, where, and because he, they did say like, wear that one that now he's not the one in 
to blame. It's the people who told him and taught him because he just didn't know better. Then he also talks about his dad being like, oh, it was a youthful mistake. But he's the one who's wearing it. So to me, who am I going to hold responsible? Like, is Harry, not William, even if you laugh. Like, of course, people will say that if they're ignorant, like, go do that. So I thought that was really interesting, too, because it felt like it kind of shook him. Like, I'm like dusting my hands, basically, of like, he felt like William's fault. He was a bad influence or whatever. And I also thought it was like my last thing is like, I thought it was really weird how he talked about the sibling rivalry. So um, in a way that was so self-aware that you felt like, is this your excuse? So Mm -hmm. he talked about how like something, you know, the money being used for a charity fund that he wanted to start. William was sort of like hesitant and he's like, I wondered why. And like, of course this is in his voice. Right. So he's like, right sibling rivalry and you're like is that what you thought like I don't get off the phone ever with my sister and go like oh yeah sibling rivalry that's why she doesn't want me to wear that shirt or like do this thing with my life right so it was an interesting weird like weird thing to access it so quickly do you think that's also because he's sort of left that family with these sort of feelings towards the members Mm -hmm. of his family including his brother and so now he's seeing that entire relationship from literally day one through that lens because he is now saying everything sibling rivalry but maybe at the time he didn't think it I think maybe now he just thinks everything is because obviously I'm the spare obviously this that and like actually maybe that's not how it was at the time or like objectively that's maybe not what it was and which you know I like you I probably suspect it wasn't um so I think it is it is very moany you know it's just like moaning about stuff and yeah um because he feels he can and like people will listen because there's a forum where people will like you know completely sympathize with him so I think it's sort of his shortcoming that he wrote this thinking this is going to be my redemption this is where everybody starts loving me and then he's now turned into a meme so (laughs) I know I say this a lot but it fascinates me like that's the one thing I'm just I can't get over it (laughs) yes it's a very good sign of what like it's sort of like the evaluation performance review after is like, were you a meme? And what form of meme are you? Are you something that's favorable? Or like people are like, oh, don't be that. Um, we know what happened with Prince Harry's book. I also think it's really interesting because I, I with the last thing I'll say about Prince William is that he probably also wants a brother in this experience that he's going through. And Prince Harry continuously shows misalignment. It must be a lot of pressure. Again, this is like uh, my sympathy, but I also don't love the like royal family in general. Is like, I I just wonder if he was like sometimes like, dude, like you're going so far away from the script. Can't you just do this one thing? Like because we could be together in this, right? Like, and I I sometimes like kind of question like, is this guy also kind of just like, fuck, I lost my brother through all this too. Um, and Harry, especially because we'll get into, you know, I'm curious too, like, as we get into like, did he do this for the right reasons? Like leaving the crown? Like, I'm, I'm also curious, like how this book was supposed to illuminate the reason why this whole thing is happening. Yeah. Um, I just don't feel like Harry's like reasons were good enough to like mm. leave the crown. Um, and we can speak more about it for him to then like throw like William under the bus and everything to me, it's like sort of not working where the same things he's criticizing William for he's not criticizing truly. And he's also not, um, he's benefited from it for this long. So like the only reason we're reading his book is because of the stuff that he's complaining about. Yeah. It's like we said, it's a bit of a paradox, right? Because he's sitting on his high horse complaining about 
like, oh my God, everything sucks. But like the fact that he has a platform is because of it. But also I don't think we can forget that actually like, I know this goes back to like a Nepo kids type situation as well, where it's like, it isn't really his fault he was born into this thing and it's not his fault he wasn't the first in line. And I think he's a product of all of it, right? Like he's literally just, he's just living out whatever is triggering him and he's obviously super triggered you can tell because yeah he's showing it but I do agree with you like I think with with William like we can't even fathom what pressure William is going through and like Mm -hmm. what pressure he's got under him and you can see it with Kate as well because you can sense that those two they kind of they really can't say anything and they can't leave and you know he is going to be the king one day and I don't think he's going to want to let go of that option you know for himself Mm -hmm. because it is such a big thing like would if you were first in line for a crown would you decide to step away from it it's easier to step away if you're not in line right yeah if someone who constantly feels like they're a reject and then add on a sob story about your dead mom and then suddenly it's like well like now I have a book about it and now I can just like complain on different forms of media so I get both of their perspectives and I do genuinely just think they're a product of what they're going through. Mm -hmm. I don't think either of them has like, it doesn't seem like either of them has achieved enlightenment and been able to see outside, you know, their bubble of privilege. I think even Harry still lives in it very much so, but it's just, he thinks now that he's on the outside. He thinks he's a bit of a commoner and, um, and he also thinks he's entitled to give opinions about people very openly without them having a chance to you know retaliate or give their own opinion in the same forum so it's a bit yeah it's a bit like younger sibling kind of vibes you know just like do whatever you want like rebel nobody says anything to you and then on top of that you complain (laughs) absolutely and this is interesting because some of the dynamics we're talking about is like younger kids go through I don't blame them for their age. Even they're going through some things like very later on because of probably the way that like they've been under under this like pressure cooker. The thing that I also really did not appreciate about this book is that it did not acknowledge history like to a degree. Like at least the Netflix documentary had some components where every like five minutes or so, like or they'd sprinkle in minutes. I wouldn't say every five minutes minutes of like some history. And like one thing that stood out to me was sort of what we were talking about earlier with the chicken or egg. Um, And to your point, it's actually the media. And the fact that the relationship with the media is directly with the family. And so the institution was like, we'll feed you these stories or like, we'll give you more access if you also like portray us more. So that dynamic, I think also doesn't get talked about enough. And even the book itself, when he's complaining about a lot of the media coverage and being like, but this is actually what I was doing, y'all. It's like also ignoring the like a fact, um, ignoring the fact that they did have this arrangement. I just didn't understand like how, like he wasn't integrating those two concepts to me. No, no, he really wasn't. I think he was also very conveniently not highlighting certain elements of what happened, right? Because yeah. that didn't put him in necessarily the best light. So it's very much a kind of look at me, everybody love me, everybody listen to my story. My story is the only one that matters. Yes. And and it's it's a bit sad, right, that it's it's kind of gone this way because it is an amazing story to tell and it could have been done differently. It could have been done, like you said, at a different time. Um, 
where there would have been a lot more clarity on his end. I, mm -hmm. I still think he's probably going through very much a sort of turbulent journey mentally and, you know, within himself, like trying to figure out who he is, if yeah. he never thought he really fit in to where he where he grew up. So there's a bit of like maybe an identity crisis that's coming through as well, um, which is being masked by like this sort of storytelling in a very defensive way. So I, I really would love um, William and Kate to do an interview or like talk about their perspective on things. But I'm also sure that it would just become a bit of a like tennis match because <laughs> yeah, then, you, then the others would to retaliate. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah. end. Um, it's just it's it's fantastic like it's fascinating yeah. um, media and content to actually consume because it's just rich people problems isn't it it is yeah I mean stories rich about white Courtney people Cox. problems absolutely where he's like oh like I'm Chandler Courtney Cox is Monica I wanted to talk to her and I'm like what, what parties are you going to um, <laughs> I don't go to these parties um, but like one example that stood out for me on our note with the media and I then wanted to ask you a little bit about like the colonial history of it was um the story he talks about where he calls a friend a packy which we know is a slur and yeah. then a, feels really bad after and to me that was the most unbearable part especially because I'm listening to his voice talk about it hearing a white man ask for sympathy because he's like I he even says I'm not a racist like the media then talks about the story and he's like I need to correct the record because people need to know that I'm not a racist. That's not how I feel. And he's like, I apologize to my friend. He understood. But for so many reasons that bothered me, because number one, you should be so lucky that you have the opportunity to even respond to something like that and like have the ability to be like, hey, I can also go on a newspaper and say I'm not racist. Secondly, this is exactly the white fragility that like you should be examining and understanding. You shouldn't have put this in a book. Honestly, I don't think it really helped to have that example because for someone who in the documentary was like, I'm learning so much from my experience, like being married to a woman who's black, mm. that seemed to ignore that. And then lastly, I just felt like, how the fuck can you make this mistake having built your wealth on the Commonwealth? Like, those countries, you should have had a crash course on how to refer to these people that you have ultimately conquered and like colonized too. How can you tell me that you don't know how to refer to someone from Pakistan or India or like Africa? Like you have done so much work here. Your family has benefited so much from these like these countries. To me, it was like, if you're doing this in your adult life, this to me is very sad that you were never educated on how to even interact with the people of the Commonwealth. It's cognizant cognitive dissonance that's yeah. what it is it's when yes you're part of the commonwealth yes you know you have access to people of all races and backgrounds but what happens when you've been brought up to believe you're above them mm -hmm. that's what it is right like they yes. go to these countries and they go and wave their hands and you know play with the kids and all this stuff and it's like it's not coming from a place of we're equal it's a it's coming from a place of I'm a royal and you're basically a peasant. So, yes. you know, let me bless you with my time and my presence yeah. and you can take photos with me. That's what it is. I mean, it's a whole show. Everything's an act, yeah. right? And I, I think he is aware of that, but he's also not removed from it. So mm -hmm. 
it was just, again, like we said, I just don't think he was healed enough to know that he did not have to put that in the book because he at this point is literally just trying to say what shit has been said about me so I can literally, you know, counteract all of it. And this was probably just one of those stories that was thrown in. But I think as a Desi reading that, like, Mm -hmm. it is actually very deprecating reading that because you're just a bit like, so that is what you think. And then you're going ahead and saying you're not a racist because you're feeling the need to justify your behavior because inherently you probably are or you were. And and we all know that family is racist. Like, of course they are. The way that Megan was treated, everything that happened around it, like, of course, there were, you know, that's like without a shadow of a doubt. And I also, in a way, like, again, they they sit in their white bubble of privilege. Like, I don't blame them for kind of thinking that, oh, yeah, like, whatever, we don't have to do this work. But you know what you said about he could have just gone on a newspaper and said whatever mm-hmm. he really thought without having to put it in a book. I don't know, because the way that they talk about the media, I think this is something that really makes me sad. And I think it makes me sort of sympathize a little bit with his situation, um, what, whatever tiny amount of sympathy I have. Um, the media is very much a set of vultures and it's a business. Mm-hmm. And so they literally, you know, they trade stories. That's how it all works. So it's like, if they have one horrible story about someone in the family, then they'll suddenly trade it with another really juicy story. Yeah, it's like a marketplace. It's a marketplace and someone will always go down for it and probably without their consent because Mm -hmm. who in their right mind would consent to it? And I think that's what happened with um, the story that was leaked about Harry doing drugs. Um, It was actually a story that was traded in, you know, from something else. So that makes me sad because it's like, actually, they have no control over what the media says about it. As much as we think me consuming some amazing news about, um, you know, like Meghan Markle's new child or whatever is is very much their doing it's not it's just whatever they whatever the media think will sell and it's it's whatever you know that they think that people are going to enjoy so as spectators as consumers of this information I think we all very much should kind of look within ourselves and and try and ask like how much time of day are we actually giving this because the Mm -hmm. minute media stops making money out of this I don't know how we would do this but the minute they stop capitalizing off it they'll probably go on to something else, you know? So that's a great call to action. Mm. I mean, it is, but also we're such a, we're such a small group of people relatively that think this way. And it's because we may have come from, you know, certain marginalized situations where we've been made to think about possibly racism in that way or like oils in that way. And so for us, it's, it's, we're in a prime position basically to question ourselves and our behavior and call ourselves out. But I think the majority of people, like you'll literally, you know, go around wider UK that's outside London and people are very different. Like they don't, they don't think in that way. And they kind of just like blindly just take in whatever. And there's a lot of racist people here. Oh, It's just different, you know, to America in the sense that people are very kind of, standoffish and they're very like kind of nice about it like they'll sort of say things in a snide way or they'll accidentally say the p word and they'll be like but I'm not racist like I've literally been told walking in Shoreditch East London to go back to my country and I'm like yeah (laughs) I'll happily go back to Spain 
But um, to Barcelona. <laughs> do you see what I mean? So it's like, yeah, you, you can change yourself, but you can't change the majority of people sometimes. And Brexit is a perfect example of that. Yeah. I mean, I know we're not going to talk about that too much here, but like the majority of people thinking that Brexit is going to get rid of immigrants, like that thing, that propaganda, yeah. that Facebook stuff, the Cambridge Analytica stuff that people consumed. Has it happened? No, the country's in shambles and immigrants have not left and immigrants are literally holding up this country. Yeah. Immigrants are the reason that this country has anything in their museums. So it's, it's just, it's, it's amazing to, you know, see that privilege and the fact that people don't actually realize that they're complicit. Yeah. I love, I, I so appreciate that you shared that because I think it's a really good also call about uh, both countries, like as we thought about the intention of you and I talking about this and this like sort mm-hmm. of like hexagon of identities we're intersecting here. Um, when you zoom out, your point about the UK applies to the US as well, right? Like that's why the black population here feels that way about like you literally built this on our backs and now look at you um, and similar to immigrants and even like Mexico and the relationship there and like, okay, thanks. Fuck you for building a wall. Like we're the ones who's, who are doing all these jobs to help you. Um, like we're building our own wall. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, comical when you think about that. Mm. I mean, celebrity culture is a bit of a pandemic in itself, right? Because yeah. especially when you see it now, I mean, you see the celebs and and what they represent now in the media and the kind of like quick media that we have access to, the sort of things that they endorse and all the wrong things. I mean, who even knows what their true values are and what they really believe? Because at the end mm-hmm. of the day, they're just they're just slaves to capitalism themselves, right? They're making money, they'll do a post, you know? And even now, as much as we live in 2023, you'll still see a lot of celebs still endorsing things like waste, weight loss products or, you know, who knows? Like they'll, they'll be doing weird stuff behind the scenes. Um, maybe like endorsing racism and you just wouldn't I don't know like you wouldn't really think about it as oh you just think oh they're just celebs you know they're just doing whatever they do and but they have such a platform such a responsibility and I know they've built that platform on whatever they've built it on but that's people's lives you're influencing and not only that but it's kids I I don't know whenever I think of people who literally have developing brains I'm like you're you're literally teaching these things these people mm-hmm. like that and do you you're not, not, do you not have a conscience about it but again it's it's cognitive dissonance because they probably don't even realize the impact they're having right they're just doing whatever they're doing and sitting in their bubble of privilege like yeah, you said absolutely and actually i'm really curious like from your point of view as someone who grew up with this cindy slash spanish slash british background how did you, how do you consume sort of, or what's your point of view on like the colonial past of the crown and what's your relationship? Like, how do your friends talk about it? Like, what do you kind of think about with this? I think it's a really interesting question because it's not one I hold a lot of strong feelings towards personally. I know I kind of should. Um, I think I'm at a stage where I'm trying to educate myself on it a bit more mm-hmm. because it's very easy to go all guns blazing, like shouting and screaming through the roofs that, oh, I have, you know, I'm Indian by heritage. Where's the Gohinoor? Give it back, this, that, and the other. But that would be quite hypocritical of me because I have received my education from a British education system. Mm-hmm. And I have also built my career and the foundations of my wealth uh, 
in on British soil. And it's interesting because, of course, my ancestors went through whatever they went through and I cannot even understand or, you know, imagine what they went through. But it was interesting because I was talking to a friend about this and I was just like, isn't it awful that Britain did all of these things? Mm-hmm. They just said to me, yeah, but if Britain hadn't done it, then France would have. And mm-hmm. it made me think because I was like, I don't, I mean, I, I don't, we can't just go around being like, oh yeah, but Britain, it's fine if they did it because then someone else would have if they hadn't. So it's fine <laughs> yeah, that they yeah. did. Because when you hear about the actual events that unfolded, the amount of documentation and art, just anything that was eradicated, like completely erased from Indian soil or like, you know, South Asian um, soil, it breaks my heart. It really does. And I was reading this um, book called Empire Land, which is written by Satnam Sangira, a British author. And it talks about... um, it talks about like imperialism and it talks about the, you know, colonial past that Britain has and not just, you know, for India, but like all the countries that they colonized and how they built like the Commonwealth. And they talk about looting and I'd never learned about or heard about looting in so much gory detail, but it was literally, you know, they'd go to villages and towns and obviously like do what they did with the people. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but they, then it was a free for all. They just go, they pick up things like jewels, gold, beautiful ornaments. Like they just steal everything and take it back. And now what you see in the museums is literally everything that's been looted from all around the world. So, and then, but then it's funny because they've stolen so many things from, um, from these countries, yet their food tastes like shit. (laughs) They do not know how to season their food. And I'm like, you've stolen every spice. What do you, what more do you want? <laughs> I could steal a secret or two. I know. Um, I, I I was not prepared for that comic relief. I was like, yes, looting. Um, and thank you for mentioning the book. I'll definitely recommend it after too. And I'd love to read it. But I, I think that's where, and maybe I'm being more raw in my anger, but I think that's where I do feel a little bit like they did this, they looted, they did all like they've now fucked us over with a lot of the cast sort of philosophy was amplified during their time and their yes. relationship with the Rajas and the kingdoms there. So I think to me, it's sort of like a reparation almost to be able to come to these countries and be able to benefit from their capitalistic institutions. Because there are things that were just, not, and this is with consent, we come with, you know, we know how like these countries feel if you don't come without consent. Um, so we come with immigration, but we, we make sure we're qualified. Um, and then we come on over. And so to me, it's like, yeah, that seems pretty fair considering how much you've like taken, like even that Kohinoor example, like, I know that's kind of like the classic thing we refer to, but Harry, I was like, for someone who's on his allyship journey, like, why wouldn't you acknowledge? Like he just said like, oh, allegedly it was stolen. There was like a sentence there. Mm, Oh, that was very blatantly not yours. Like, so the fact that you're even getting to see it in its presence, like a lot of like Indians don't even see that ever in their lifetime. So to me, that was just really interesting. So I I come from a place with a lot more probably frustration around that um, because that's where I think this book could have also probably like if I had to rewrite this book, like I would probably dedicate a lot of these like part one, part two, part three to like intergenerational trauma and like helping people also like connect to like, how do you heal intergenerational trauma and mental health, like issues that came about from the privacy and media situation. I think that could have been productive. 
And I also think it could have had some recommendations on like how he could probably move forward with this history. Like, can they undo it? No. But like, what are you going to now do in your position with your platform? And now apparently increased awareness because you married a black woman that like, what are you going to do now? You know? And like, to me, it always reminds me, like when I worked at a company um, early on, I had to do an employee relations, like uh, mediation, if you will. And I had to coach an employee on the fact that he called a woman over the radio, a black bitch. And, um, she heard it and she was a temp employee. Um, so of course, like already, like people are like, kind of like, oh, can you just talk to him since she's a temp employee? Like they didn't take as severe action as they should have. So I'm talking to him. He's this like 45 year old plus man. I'm 23 or 22. So I was like, I'll do my best to school this man. Um, but I pointed it out, like some of my points and he was like, well, I'm not racist. I'm married to a black woman. And I remember being like, the fuck do I say to that? Like, this guy's like a hopeless because he thinks he's now justified in what he's doing. And to me, sometimes bringing it back to Harry too, like, and, and I appreciate the context you said, because I really like don't have that from like an American lens. But that's kind of where I was also like, bro, like you can't just now be the person to talk about that. It's like it gives him a free pass, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I can do yeah. whatever I want because my wife is black. Actually, like speaking of the topic of racism, it's actually quite interesting that I grew up in a country that is very racist towards Asians. And I mean South Asians and East Asians because um, the there's a huge Chinese population in Spain. There is a huge Indian, Pakistani and Bangladeshi uh, population in Spain as well. And they do all the labor intensive jobs. So they, I mean, what I would consider to be labor intensive in certain elements is things like running a supermarket that runs for 24 hours and is also yeah. open on a Sunday and throughout of all, the whole month of August, which is the month that literally everyone in Spain takes off. Right. So I guess in the US it's equivalent to blue collar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, basically like blue collar. And um, what what's interesting is it was so normalized to be casually racist, especially towards Chinese people um, because they do you know they literally run all the warehouses all the shops and everything and so you kind of just be like oh yeah like let's go to the Chinese shop but you would say it in a bit more of a kind of yeah like like a derogatory kind of way and so um, when I moved to the UK and I met people who are obviously from all over the world including places like China and Hong Kong um, they called me a racist and I think that's still kind of held its sort of stance um in my reputation because oh yeah mitz is a racist and i'm like i literally i'm trying really hard not to be so i think there's an element of okay you come from somewhere and something is normalized and the times are different but like what are you doing today to change that and how much work are you putting in because yeah i think there's also something in making a mistake right and then calling yourself out absolutely And I understand that, you know, going back to Harry's book, like I understand that he was kind of trying to do that, but I don't think the intention was coming across as him trying to redeem himself. It was very much a him trying to redeem his reputation, which is a very different yes. art. I mean, maybe you should do that, Nathalie, with your friends, like write a book that's just dedicated to them. I'm not a racist. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not racist. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, though, I completely agree. Like, I think that's the part that's like a little confusing to me in terms of the the way that we're part of these countries that are so um self-aware in some ways and then so not 
I remember I like, this is my 30 seconds of like with London, what I experienced. Um, so when I came to London with my friend, it was like a trip that we took when we were, I think like 26, 27, it was right when, um, I forget what, but what matters actually, let me pause. It's a trip we took in 2016 when Trump was elected. So he was elected on November 4th or 5th. And our trip started on the 7th. So when we flew in, we went to this bar and like, uh, what's that place with the marketplace that's really popular that people go to that's like an open market? Borough Market. Yes, Borough Market. We were there at one of the pubs and these guys were talking to us and they were like, oh, you're from America, like Trump. And we were like, oh, you're British, like Brexit. And so we kind of (laughs) were in this like standoff, like where we were like, neither of us knew enough to talk about it, but we were just like, I hate it. And he like he was pro Brexit. So it's like, well, we have nothing in common for us to sleep together. But um I I was single at the time. Um, but I I remember just thinking like this is so interesting because in some way we are like so arrogant about our own place, but yet we're so also like defensive of like where we come from and like the decisions we're doing around race and like some of this stuff. So um one thing I did notice though was that I felt like Indians were not as much of a novelty, like I felt like they're in the U.S. Sometimes even Indians, when they see each other, it happened to me yesterday where Anton's like, oh, like they were like really staring at you. Um, That hasn't changed from your childhood, huh? And I was like, yeah, like we I think we still do the like you're brown, I'm brown, like, hi. Um, (laughs) And so I didn't notice that in London, but I don't know if you've ever kind of thought about the opposite when you come to the U.S., uh, so I've never been to the US, funnily. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to come. So I'm planning well, to. invited to my place anytime. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so no, you. I have had a slightly different experience. I think, yes, in London, you know, there isn't that much of a novelty when it comes to seeing Desis everywhere. Like you kind of see them on the tube, you see them everywhere. You don't really bat an eyelid. And what I yeah. notice is like people don't really look at me either. Um when I am back in Spain, yes, it's very different, you know, because people will literally stare you down. Um, but it depends where you go, because I think if you go to places like, I don't know, places like maybe South Hall, Wembley, I've noticed that people stare more there. And I don't know if it's because it's people who just have like a diff- slightly different back- background. Maybe it's yeah. people who have not gr- like grown up in the UK. And for them, it's still like, wow, like there's brown people everywhere. Yeah. So, um, it just, yeah, I guess it just varies and depends where you are. But I do think there is still an element of it. And and actually, there's an equivalent in the Black community, which is like you do a bit of a nod. So yeah. like when you see another Black person, you like do a bit of a nod. I don't know what it's called, but um, I heard about it um, when I interviewed someone actually who's Black and they were just telling me about it. And it was just like, yeah, we kind of do it too. I mean, I don't know. But then equally, I think on the flip side, you'll see like a another desi woman who's like similar age to you and yeah. sometimes you get the bitchiest looks and i'm just like yes. why why what have i done to you <laughs> i was thinking the same thing is i think that the one difference that i there are many differences i'm lo- like learning about the black community's support for each other and the i'll speak to south asian americans but that's one thing that i think is missing is that there's like an element of competition within south asians that doesn't always come into play like with the black community. And this is as someone who's not black, I'm, I should be corrected if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. um, I haven't noticed as much of that, at least from what I've heard or like kind of read about, but actually like going back also to the book itself, like I, on that note, I'm also curious, like we're talking about race relations, but also like misogyny and like the patriarchy kind of going into that light topic. 
how did you feel like that was portrayed in this book? Because we we were talking a lot about race, but I think there are a lot of hints towards the patriarchy in this book that are not as explicitly called out. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's again, it's funny because like the way that he puts his mom on a pedestal, right? And then sometimes the way that Kate is spoken about or the way that he speaks about his grandma, his great grandma, or even, even Megan to that point. I think, I do think there's an element of they are not equal. Like the women mm-hmm. in this family are not the same. Um, maybe a little bit of a they're in they're damsels in distress kind of vibes as well. Yeah. Of like, oh my God, look at how much they're suffering and like look at how uh, you know, what's the word? Uh, broken they are at times. Yeah. And I think I think that really came through, like that whole vibe. And I don't know if it was intentional from Harry's perspective, because I do know he calls himself a feminist, you know, and obviously Megan is a massive feminist. Um, so it's it's interesting, right? And I wonder if it's maybe my own, like, biases that made me perceive it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I w- I'd love to know your thoughts on this topic. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm really intrigued by that point of view, because... I couldn't tell basically like sometimes I was confused because I like I love me a man who's like giving women the time of like the um, sympathetic ear and like trying to sympathize. At least he did that where I felt like, okay, at least you're kind of like, you know, respecting the fact that you had the queen, your grandmother do this role that was like incredibly, incredibly large and stressful and just challenging. Um but just because you have a queen doesn't uh, ignore the fact that this whole institution has been reinforced by men, has been driven by men. And um, I think that's the part where I was like, wait, but on one hand, you do this and on the other. And so his inability to see how this all affects his brother, too, I thought was really interesting, like going back to like that piece and um, his own father. Like I thought he also kind of gave his dad a pass a lot more than he probably should have. Um, yes. So that was also really confusing to me is like at times, like to your point, I think like he, he really did talk about the suffering of women, but he didn't talk about the suffering of men. And that might seem at first glance, like he's being a feminist, but actually I think like he forgave the men a lot more um, Mm. in a way that he didn't with the women. So I think that was one thing that like, I just, my personal observation the thing that also I, I wish he had spoken about was like, to your point about Kate, like, I think the media actually split them apart more like Megan and Kate than they probably yes. intended to. Like, I think it probably introduced, like, imagine if you're Kate, like, um, you're like, okay, now all of a sudden I'm competing with this chick. Like we're <laughs> so different. Like we come from such different backgrounds. So the story that stood out to me is like, I think it's like in the third part a little bit, like at that point I was just like skimming through at the third part, um, was like where they talk about, um, the lip gloss fiasco yes. and, yes when she like gets a bit disgusted because yeah and honestly first I've had South Asians do this to me where they're like oh like the concept of like uh saliva right like where they're like we don't share in Thelgu we say angly so we're like oh we don't do that um (laughs) or even here we'll be like oh can you like wipe it first or something right so to me it was not the thing I like the hill I would die on to be like Kate sucks um (laughs) also there's a cultural difference like there is a little bit more formality that I at least picked up in London um versus like in SF where I was living at the time um and so maybe it's just a cultural difference like to me that doesn't say that she was against Megan or maybe she was like you know trying to like compete with Megan or have this like despicable attitude towards her. Um, 
I hope that makes sense. Like, I, I think yeah. like that's where I got confused where I was like, how is Harry ignoring the fact that the media that he hates so much and is the per- like antagonist of his novel is the one that's also responsible for driving, me- pitting against each other, Megan and Kate. Mm. Do you think it's also something about how sometimes women can get a little bit competitive with each other, right? It's. Do you think sometimes it is in, in our nature because we can be quite nurturing, but we can also be a little bit territorial? Mm. Um, about like our stance in a family or like where we stand with our husbands you know yeah. this this element of like the jealous girlfriend or like the jealous I don't know the, the you know the mom or like you do hear these things a lot in media being stereotyped but I've seen it within my own life like I think going back to that um the lip gloss point or the lip yeah lip gloss or lip balm I don't know what it was but um Someone refused my offer of um, my little Carmex lip balm, which is not actually one of those that you put directly on your mouth. Like yeah. it's a tube, you squeeze, right. like same as in the story. So you squeeze it out. And um, this person was just like, oh yeah, no, I don't share lip balm. And like, but I could tell that they needed it. So I was just a bit like, okay, like fair enough, you know, but it was a bit yeah. different because I wouldn't have approached it that way. Yeah, um, I would have just been, oh yeah, whatever, like. I mean, I'm talking to you. I'm probably spitting at you anyway as I'm talking. So what difference does it make? Um, But no, I think going back to that point about like female, maybe like competition and jealousy. Sometimes what happens is when people do pit you against someone, like you do sometimes think, oh, well, I didn't think this was a problem. But now it seems like, is there a problem? Like, do you have a problem? And then they'll be saying the same thing. And then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, there is a problem now. And I wonder if it just comes from a place of maybe insecurity or like being cautious. And, you know, often when other people sort of like interfere in your life and they'll like feed things like that does play on your mind. And if you're not like resilient enough or if it just happens for too long, then you will at some point cave. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And they didn't just do it once. They did it with so many stories. For with, sure. That um, was only one example. Right. Like Kate and Megan probably went through this for months, if not years. Like I remember there was a whole story about avocados and how like, oh, you know, Kate eats mm-hmm. avocados and that's a really good thing. But like Megan eats avocados. And do you not know they're so expensive? And like, why are you endorsing this? And who what, who do yeah, you think you are with your privilege? That was in the documentary. So so it probably was a lot of things. And they also compared like her clothing. They're, they're literally yeah. their outfits were compared exactly like photos were put next to each other. And imagine how horrible that is. Like sure. no matter how rich, famous, whatever you are, like you're still a human being and that would still get to you. Even if you don't read it, I'm sure it would come to you in some way, right? Someone would tell you about it or you. Yeah. yeah. So, so I do, I do feel sorry for it because I Mm -hmm. you know I'm such an advocate for like women supporting each other but I know in practice it doesn't happen always and it's not always because there's no intention to support each other I just feel like sometimes it's your biases or your insecurities or it's just the fact that other people are pitting you against each other and then you're like ah like how much can I resist this so yeah I I completely agree I'm glad you brought up the avocado example too, because I think that's actually a good place where the intersectionality of Megan's identity comes in, where I know we're talking about purely like race and like patriarchy, but you know, when you bring it together, I think that's where the nuance happened for Megan. Um, yeah. And so true. right. Like, especially cause like I, even in the U S like some of the like really classic books, when you think about like, and this happened in real life too, but like, um, to kill a mockingbird where you're sort of like examining this dynamic between 
a black man and a white woman. And even though her income makes her like in this hierarchy of the society quote at the bottom, because she's being put in trial against a black man, the dynamic completely flips where then people are sympathetic, sympathetic towards her versus this man, right. Who gets then um, sentenced, even though he didn't do the crime. So to me, that's where I sort of think of those sort of examples when we look at these things, because you're like, okay, well then like, but at the end of the day, day, women against women, Megan's a black woman. So they, of course, like went ahead and they're like demote, you know, her storyline. But then going back to your question of like the women, if we like, you know, that competitive nature, I think it's actually, uh, you know, you use the word nature, but nature versus nurture, like that's the concept Mm -hmm. I think of where I think we've actually been nurtured to compete, not our nature is not to compete. Mm. Sometimes when we look at those like societies that have less of the sophistication of technology, maybe, or even just how we started off, like in really large families and um, women had to support each other because the unit was never this individualistic and private. Like that's more of a recent phenomena. So I think it's really interesting to see like how we were probably not to say like we didn't argue or have naturally like born, you know, like if we were a sibling or something competitiveness, but I do think the patriarchy plays a huge role in like, I imagine like men are the magnet with the plus sign and like women have the negative. But if you have one plus sign with like five negatives, then you're like always competing for that one attachment. Maybe this is a poor Mm. example, but like, because in corporate, you'll see, right, like women will compete more because they're like, well, it seems like men think that we have one place like at the team. So who's going to get that put like spot? Who's going to be in favorability? And now if you're in favorability, then I don't get that job. But if I think the world was more like, uh, like equitous in that way um I don't know yeah. if we'd compete that much yeah I don't know it's a good question and not one that I have figured out the answer to I don't again don't know if there is one because everyone is different right like we are yeah. generalizing of course but um but I think you are right in that sometimes it is systemic in that and maybe it's it's an illusion that we think no it's not an illusion it is systemic yeah there is sometimes only one chair at the table if right. that maybe there's half a chair and you kind of have to scramble to fit in it because that's usually what happens right and, and actually what ends up then happening is because you've somehow made it on that chair you then actively feel responsible to literally kick off any other woman that comes because yeah you need to make it as hard for her as it was for you And, um, and I do think there is probably some sort of element of that, you know, like nurture, like you said, of, we're told that we need to compete with each other. Um, because why else would we, right? Because we inherently are like, no, women support women and we want to, and all of this stuff. But then as soon as we're triggered, like it's a bit of a different story sometimes. I did want to ask a little bit about like, did Megan and Harry benefit from white supremacy? And I wanted to include Megan in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Like she has light skin privilege as a black woman and she has pretty privilege as well and thin privilege and like so much. And, and because, I mean, literally I remember watching Suits and I was just like, who is that? And it was Rachel Mm -hmm. Um, So You know, that there is, she's always had that. And then on top of that, she's intelligent and like really charismatic. So, um, and she also has that story of, I was an awkward kid and, you know, I was a little ugly duckling that became right. a swan. And she's got all of that. So, of course, like on paper, she sounds incredible. And I'm sure she is amazing, but she just got stuck in, you know, deeper than what she could handle. And that's something I do wanted to talk, did want to talk about, actually, which was like, do you really believe that she didn't know what she was getting herself into? Because 
that's kind of the narrative that she portrays a lot right she's like oh I didn't know I had to courtesy and like I don't I didn't know that um this was gonna happen to me and it's like but you're such an intelligent woman you read you watch the news I'm sure you knew about the royal family so how can you allude to not knowing anything I completely agree I that's where I wanted to be careful a little bit too but like I don't think either you or me neither you or me English Lari um, are saying like we don't sympathize with the facts you know how she was treated absolutely not yeah I don't undermine that at all yeah exactly and I think there's a piece of some of the stuff that she does talk about though in her defense I sort of disagree with because to your point like you are marrying a prince like even through if you did not know at all like if we believe the fact she didn't even know who prince has was in the celebrity community or like h or whatever um through dating through like the experiences she was having going back and forth like what she's learning from him like how he's preparing her hopefully like that would in itself probably give you a sense of this is something unlike anything else. And it's not that she was like, hey, I'm going to marry into this family. I'm probably not going to execute a lot of the duties um, because I'm not prepared for it or I'm not interested. She also wanted to participate in it. I also think she did a lot of those patronizing visits and all these like instances of like this whole white savior complex of going to Africa, Afghanistan, et cetera, to like help. Um So I don't care who you are, even if I go and shake hands in India, it's a joke. Like, don't, don't, that's not help, you know, ultimately. So like that piece, I thought like she ignored a lot of like how she fed into the system too. She benefited as well when she was in it. Of course, they did not treat her fairly. So I think that's totally fair. Like when the documentary came out and she talked about that in that episode, I thought they did an excellent job of showing the data and evidence of how they mistreated her and really did not give her the same respect and, you know, fair um, equity with the reporting. But I I also like, you know, I was talking to a friend and um, she's black and she was kind of sharing how like, you know, for her, it was like a little, it was interesting because she's like, you know, growing up, Megan hasn't always identified with the black community. And she got a lot of her privilege because of that, what you mentioned before, light skin privilege. Her mom even shares in the documentary that like she didn't talk to her about race a lot growing up, like in that way, when until like she got married to Harry and she was dealing with some of these things. So she was sort of saying like the, the what's the term, like the proximity to whiteness, that sort of toxicity that that it can bring out. Um, is disappointing to see that Megan is now kind of tapping into her black network and like appealing to that identity and like being like, I'm one of you guys, Um, especially in the context of also like how the black community has like evolved through in American history. It's really unfortunate to see like even the documentary's ability to like say somehow that the freedom flight that they were on was like the fact that they called it a freedom flight i was like dude your ancestors were in slavery like that there were freedom tunnels like you don't talk about your jet but private jet that like you know whatever princess diana's money and tyler perry's home that's your destination afforded you so i think that part really pissed me off about like where i wanted to be on her side um really hurt and it kind of then also made sense why harry is sort of a fair weather ally he's not like He's actually the most dangerous kind of white ally, in my opinion, because he thinks he's like really reformed, but he's actually like really, really like white savior complex patronizing. 
Mm. I was I was fascinated and listening very intently because I completely echo everything what you said like just now because it is dangerous. How could it not be when he thinks he's like achieved like the highest form of enlightenment when it comes to feminism and yeah. you know understanding race and all of this stuff and it's like that probably makes you the worst. Um the Megan on that topic I can see how she would have been through a bit of a journey, like mm-hmm. growing up in America. I mean, I I don't know what it was like, right? I mean, neither of us know these people in person. So right. we're only really judging based on what we're seeing on the surface. But I think I can see where she would have benefited her whole, whole life from having light skin privilege to the point where when I saw her in suits, I didn't know she was half black. Mm-hmm. I thought she was Latina or she could have been anything, right? Yeah. Um, and then to go and suddenly be like I'm black and I support the black community I can kind of see where her being black would have become a much bigger deal for her when she moved to the UK Mm -hmm. and so suddenly she was like oh shit I should learn about this part of my ancestry I should learn this about myself obviously like I'm getting so much stick for it imagine what other people get and so I do think we're all kind of on that journey in a way, right? Like learning, getting better than we were yesterday. And so I personally wouldn't hold it against her just because she, you know, benefited from it in the past. And now she's like trying to help the black community. But I think where I do completely echo your sentiments is when there's this savior complex of like, I'm lighter skinned, but I'm going to go to places like Africa where people are darker skinned and I'm just going to stand there and, be just beautiful and really well-dressed and wear heels in the mud and just like shake people's hands and do like little dances with them and then go home thinking I made a difference because I'm sure that okay yeah they probably spread smiles and happiness and people were probably really excited to meet them I also don't deny that they probably do donate a lot of money and that all like there's stuff that we don't know that happens probably behind the scenes but I think those particular sort of spectacles Mm. why are they necessary like I get it you're famous I I do get it and I get that maybe it's not under your control like that you're having to go to these things but if you've had the audacity to literally leave the royal family then you should also know better than you know saying yes to such things because you live in 2023 you should know that that in itself is you kind of elevating yourself above those people that you're photographing yourself with right um so I think there's there's a bit of naivety, maybe a bit of like, you know, ostrich sticking their head in, head in the sand. I don't know. But um, yeah. but I, I really think they should do better because completely they represent something, you know, they're icons for specific communities and yeah. demographics. And I think when you have that level of, let's say, influence over the masses, um, you should definitely think more, you know, harder and, and really question it every day. And you, we just don't see that being translated into their actions always, which is where I'm coming from when I make this comment. Because again, like I said, I don't know them in person. So who knows what good they do behind the scenes. Right. I know. I love what you said. One, the piece about reminding, I feel like you humbled me for a second to remember that also the journey with your racial identity does evolve over time. Um, so to your point, like, you know, of course, like maybe she is having a reckoning in terms of like how she relates to and understands her role also with the black community. Um, that's something that I did too, right. With like India, like there's a period where you're like, I'm ashamed, like, oh my God, stinky rotis, you know, at school. And 
um, to your point with the accents before, like, oh, like making fun of the quote fob culture. Like now I'm like humiliated at my own self that I like thought that that was funny. It was probably part of my journey. And now I'm kind of like, wow. Um, but you know, of course she has a right to that. I think the part that's then that should be critiqued. So I take back what I said a little bit about that, but like, um, is our piece of like, you can't deny though, that a lot of the opportunity you got and the like privilege you did have in order to get here is something you should acknowledge. And the second thing I was going to say is I think that's like a big overarching theme. I'm noticing even just like our conversation with the book and is that, uh, intentionality. Like what is your intention about this piece? Why are you taking up this much time with your documentary? What's the point you're trying to make? Because we ask ourselves, this is like commoners every day. Like what are the intentionality? Like what's the intention behind my action? I think a lot of these, I'm like, I I love that you're defending the intentions that you have. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Intentionality is everything. Because I just think how much time and effort are they putting into telling the story over and over again in different terminology, different words, different interviewer. It's like, chill out. Like we've heard your story. Calm down. Say something else. Do something else. You know, Meghan Markle, go back to acting, like go back into suits or something like we miss you, you know? Yeah, (laughs) no, definitely. Um, That being said, you know, just as we bring this to a close, like I'd, I'd be curious, like, how now, like you had mentioned, like, you know, Megan, like maybe go into acting. So what would you like for, let's focus on Harry since he's the protagonist mm. of our conversation. How would you like Harry to now spend his time? If you could be his like PR advisor and like chief of staff. I, it's not something I've thought about, you know, and I, I mean, no, I'll go back on that. I did think about it and I couldn't think of something he could do because Mm -hmm. bless him. I just don't know what talent he's got apart from just talking about his Royal family background. I mean, I know now he's not a great writer because Mm -hmm. he just pretty much like everything was a sexual innuendo. I know we didn't talk about that element of the book, but like, what the hell? Did you know (laughs) how many times he talked about his penis? Right? Yeah. There's an article. It counted 15 why like that that's the you know how many times he spoke about it openly like there were also so many innuendos like since you know from the very beginning to the end like it's just the whole thing is very sexual but anyway um to him back to mommy issues very freudian (laughs) yeah very very true um so maybe he could write an erotica he'd probably be good at that or maybe really bad but like in a kind of twilight sort of way where like it feels to the masses (laughs) where he's Um, using his mom's lip gloss for his you know (laughs) oh oh, the elizabeth arden cream yeah goodness me um so i think what harry could be doing with his time is just finding ways to give back you know just learning a bit more calling himself out a little bit more Mm -hmm. um possibly doing more good within the commonwealth uh my understanding when i last checked was that they still kind of do stuff within that but I, I don't know if they've now completely removed themselves or not um, ever since they've sort of like escaped. Um, I think they actually have, haven't they? They've completely removed themselves now. But I, you know, I don't know because what could he do that would make him money? You tell me. Yeah, I think um, I wonder if they've completely removed themselves. And I also like there are a lot of theories of people who are like they probably will go back um, or he might go back because it's like almost an immature child behavior right now where if you act like this once you think through things I wonder how he would do it that being said I think 
he hasn't renounced the title, so he's still a part of it. And I think for me, what I would love to see is that instead of him taking the platform, he doesn't need to be the face of the fight, but that he actually bankrolls or elevates and promotes different organizations or individuals who are doing work in specifically spaces that he, for some reason, failed to themify in his book, but like around intergenerational trauma, mental health, how to work in a, you know, how to um, take care of yourself in a world where everything is digitized, including your data and identity and like pictures. Like, you know, I, I never even thought about this, but like in our last episode, we talk about period health, like menstrual health and how uh, apps are now taking your data about your cycle and using it. Right. So there's so much he can talk about how people like every day and like appeal to us. And I think that's where I would love to see him spend his time, first of all. And like also, you know, white men on their journey to become better allies. And like instead of promoting Mm -hmm. himself, the thing he should be doing, which we always learn about allyship, is promote the voices and like spaces that actually uh, have credible audiences to talk about this. Let them like get that spotlight. Um, So I think that's like something that like already I'm kind of like, okay, if he spent his time there, I'd be like, this is a good like way for him to have wasted our time yeah yeah it's a good redemption I agree I think he's got a platform he's got a voice and he's obviously always going to be famous and probably more so now so why not use that fame and that kind of those eyes on you to actually help other people help you know like young girls maybe who want to start businesses who are in the black community because obviously like you're learning more about that community now like you could literally do anything without being the face of it and mm-hmm. this is what irks me a little bit and it gives me the ick when people like him people like Megan are like constantly the face of everything because it's like who do you think you are like just going there constantly like yeah okay people are buying into it but there's a hype at the moment and that, yeah. when that hype dies down I think you're gonna have to find other things to do with your life and, and I'm sure when your kids grow up they're not going to be proud of you like constantly going on different channels talking about the same story so yeah just invest in other people and you know elevating them helping them and and be a better human be a better parent make the world a better place for your kids because you've you've had two and you have a responsibility to you know, make it a, a decent place for them. Help with global warming. Like that's the next problem we're going to face. So why not exactly. become like, a, there's so much you can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I'm sure they have sources of income that we don't know about. And these like media deals they've got now will last them for many years to come, you know? So it's, it's a bit of like, just, you know, have a bit of um, self-awareness to, to know that the Completely world is agreed. so much bigger than you. And, you know, you can literally help literally with a flick of your finger you could help at least 50 people just by doing almost nothing so why not absolutely completely agree especially like I mean I won't even like you said it perfectly I paid 33 dollars for that book I feel like I'm an invested shareholder now and they're like whole system and so I'm like kind of looking for the ROI and I now like my money um I also like the last thing I'll add is just like relatability like I'd love for him to really think about like what his story uh, means for the everyday person that doesn't share that type of privilege and doesn't share that type of environment and world the because the platform and all that is awesome but if someone is so out of touch they lose credibility right so like to me, still, I'm like, I can't under, I can't even sometimes feel bad for you, even though you're talking about like awful things. 
like the piece about like where he talks about his mother and like the last thing that she saw was photographers. That was the only time in the book that I kind of even felt emotional or like, you know, that's what struck the chord for me out of that entire book was that because that is something we can all relate to is like the way your, you know, your mother and like how someone should be able to have the right to exit this life, you know? And yeah. so I think like, that's the piece that I'm like, why don't you think about also your mother's legacy appealing to the masses? Like she connected to people on an individual level, like maybe take that into consideration and be inspired by your own mom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe try and like change something about whatever it was that, you know, made your life so hard, because I'm yeah, sure that yeah. would help other people within your own family but also other royal families or like celebrity culture in general I mean they talk a lot about like paparazzi and stuff like why not actually Mm -hmm. put in some effort and investment into doing something about changing that I don't know what that would look like but like it's a way better use of your energy than talking about your penis you know in a book absolutely yeah exactly So that being said, I have a couple last things for you. One is our trip trip round. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you dump your family for to marry? Aditya Roy Kapoor, man. Who? Aditya Roy Kapoor. Oh, yes. I understand. (laughs) Marry? Absolutely. Just eye candy. I love how I didn't yeah. even hesitate. Giving I know. I was like, this is a little too top of your head. Um, have we talked about it with our parents? Um, <laughs> who is your favorite ally in the media? And specifically, like, who do you think is a Caucasian ally who's doing good work that people could look to, in your opinion, for some ways of modeling? I think Justin Baldoni. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You know his work. So obviously he was in Jane the Virgin as Raphael. Uh, absolutely gorgeous man but even more than that um, he is you know very very like vocal and very kind of determined to talk about how you know men cry and you know men's mental health but also like super feminist in every aspect of how he lives his life Um, I would never want to actually you know, see a different side to him. So I have obviously this impression in my head that he's perfect. So I I just hope that he's actually like that with his family and the people around him in real life. Um, if you had to become a farmer, what is the item you'd pick to have a farm of? Um, that's, that's a really hard question. I think it would be <laughs> something that I like eating. So mm-hmm. potatoes, yeah. unlimited supply of potatoes. And they're so versatile. You can literally do everything with them. So yeah, look out for the Mithali vodka line. 
Coming to you, 2K24. I was thinking more like French fries or, you know. Yeah, me too. Um, What's a food unique to the UK that you think people need to know about? I mean, after the comment I made earlier, I feel yeah. like I'm in a position <laughs> to say anything about British food. Um, that's quite a tough one. I think, do you know what? Occasionally I do, I do like a roast and I think like, cause I'm vegetarian. So a veggie or vegan roast and especially mm-hmm. at Christmas with like the gravy and the cranberry yes. sauce, still very bland, but I'll put some masala on it and it tastes great. <laughs> oh, I'm so with you. I'm also vegetarian and I feel like you can make a mean loaf through like lentils, whatever. So come love that. What is, lastly, what is the sexiest thing a person can do on a date that would make your panties go to the floor? Um, let's have a think. So. Elizabeth Arden. Oh, no, please. <laughs> I can't get that out of my mind. Do you know what? It wouldn't be one thing. It would be a series of small things. So it would be things like a great laugh, a lot of confidence, eye contact, maybe an occasional like brushing of the shoulder or like hand on your kind of mm-hmm. knee, that kind of thing. So yeah, little, little things that would just like add up. You like the slow seduction, the foreplay. What about you? Love it. <laughs> you were supposed to ask me back because I didn't think of this answer. Um, <laughs> I think emotional vulnerability and self-awareness. The minute I see that, I'm like, oh. Uh, lastly, I'd love to hear a little bit about your podcast and what Brown Game Strong is about. How can us, especially like if we're maybe uh, Desi Americans too, like what could we also learn from it? Well, it's interesting that at the start of this episode, we talked about how, you know, saying South Asian is so generic and actually we appreciate like the intersectionality within our experiences as well. Um, because we both have the term brown in our podcasts. And so my my podcast is called Brown Game Strong. And I've really gone back and forth with this idea of like, should I be generalizing the South Asian experience and like trivializing it mm-hmm. so much? Because in the episodes themselves, I try to make it very evident that, you know, we're talking about a very specific type of experience. Like I will never say, oh yeah, South Asian people, they all go through this. Like I really yeah. try not to. Um, I I mean, that's how it started, obviously, but that was three years ago. And I feel like times have changed. And now people, we all appreciate a bit of nuance, right? Um, So Brown Game Strong. Yeah. So it is a podcast about holding space for um, South Asian creatives, largely based in the UK. But I've also interviewed people across America, India, um, pretty much around the world. But yeah, it's um, the sort of listener base and the sort of guests that come on are quite largely um, people who've either lived in the UK for a while or they've been born and brought up um, in the UK. And we try and just understand where these people sort of grew up and like what kind of makes them tick, you know, what what sort of insecurities did they they have when they were younger? What demons are they facing? But also what are all, all the cool things that they're doing with their time? Because a lot of them have creative pursuits, like full time actor, dancer, Um, but also people who have double lives and you know who have like corporate jobs but then they do stuff in the evenings that's completely unrelated so I love hearing all sorts of experiences and I love learning through it so yeah first of all thank you so much for this incredible conversation I intended for this to be a 40 minute conversation (laughs) and it just naturally evolved I loved it so much 
Thank you, Mithali. I like your whatever is in your mind. I just love how you articulate it and what you're putting out in the world. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Lahari, for thinking of me and having me on. I mean, it was a pleasure collaborating with you on uh, Culture Donar, but it's also an even bigger pleasure to come onto your podcast and share a few thoughts. I hope we don't get cancelled for our opinions, but you know, if we do, then it was worth it. Yes. It was a good ride. <laughs> <laughs> totally.